Mike! Tell me something I don't know, Ump. Well, unlike that nasty curveball, there aren't any surprises when you finance your next car with Carvana. You get real terms personalized for you right in your strike zone. Really? Steeride! Well, how am I supposed to focus when you're telling me about Carvana? Well, Slugger, you gotta keep your eye on the ball. Just like you can keep an eye on your customized down and monthly car payments. I can customize those? He's out and on his way to finance his next car with Carvana. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to get pre-qualified today. We'll drive you happy at Carvana. Low energy, or low E, affects millions. In fact, it would be running rampant if it had the energy to run. Fortunately, Planet Fitness can help. Now through May 10th, join for $1 down, $10 a month, cancel any time. Enjoy equipment for every workout in our clean and spacious, judgment-free zone. With your new Big Fitness Energy, you can combat low E symptoms, such as persistent couch crave and excessive leaning. Don't wait. Join Planet Fitness for $1 down, $10 a month, cancel any time. Deal ends Wednesday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Millions of despairing men, women, and little children. Victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the U.S. Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we, uh, we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. Welcome everyone into Garden of Doom and this episode we're very fortunate to have with us Professor Robert Temple. Uh, Professor Temple has uh, written for uh, The Guardian, the, the Times, he's been a science reporter, he's a visiting professor at a university in Beijing, he's uh, been a professor uh, in other places as well, but he's probably best known as an author, um, he's got a ton of books, um, and I recently heard him on Earth Ancients, and everyone knows that uh, Cliff Dunning was on this show probably two years ago when I was real new with this, and he was kind enough to 
lend his voice to my show and I've stolen a lot of guests from him. I didn't steal anything from him. He, he always gets fir first dibs usually. Um, but without further ado, uh, Professor Temple, thank you so much for coming into the Garden of Doom. Well, Jeff, it's a great honor. Uh, nice to meet you, uh, even indirectly like this or virtually. Although I think you really exist, don't you? I mean, you're not, you're not a hologram, are you? I mean, you're really there? Yeah, they, they don't make holograms this defective. No, yeah, I, I, I'm real to the extent that all of us is. Uh, you know, I had someone recently ask me, are we in a simulation? You know, that's all the big thing now. We're all in the Matrix. I'm like, what difference does it make? <laughs> it's not like you have another choice. You, you're, either, you're here or you're not. If you, you know, either way, your life is going to be the same. So, but we are going to be addressing some uh, similarly large questions and I heard your presentation, I know that you've written on tons of topics, but I heard your presentation on, on the synchronization between science and religion. And that's something that I've sort of stumbled across myself in the three years of doing this show. And I really sort of pride myself on being a complete amateur in this area and stumbling across things that smarter people already came across before and wrote about. Um, it's just, I wasn't reading on it. So I, you know, I don't feel like, oh no, someone, you know, sort of, trumped my discovery, I'm like, oh, that's validation. Good. I'm, I'm, I'm doing things the right way and drawing some of this, the, the right conclusions. But um, if we could take a step back and you could sort of introduce yourself and give your bio and, and you know, talk about some of the things that you've studied and written. Well, first, I want to say that we are all amateurs. And uh, <laughs> the, uh, the amateurism that we all have shows its way in different areas. But it doesn't matter how much you know about a certain subject. There's always so many more subjects you know nothing about that, that we're all basically ignorant pigs. True, <laughs> true, true. Oink, oink, oink. <laughs> <laughs> so um, now my new book is called A New Science of Heaven, and I've written it for people who don't know any science. No equations, and, and I believe in getting through to the general public. I do not like elites, and I don't like hobnobbing with lots of intellectuals who are mostly very conceited people and extremely annoying and opinionated. So um, what I'm interested in doing is communicating with the, the general public, of which I consider myself a member, an honorary member perhaps, because I'm also an intellectual, but my loyalty is with the people. So, okay, you want my CV? Well, sure. I, I was born in America, believe it or not. I do believe it because I, I, your accent is sort of watered down, so it, it seems like maybe something you've grown into. That's right. I came over to England, where I now live, um, as a student. But I, I grew up in Kentucky, um, a state of um, rolling hills and bluegrass and racehorses uh, in Kentucky. And bourbon. Um, uh, and bourbon. Um, and nothing like a mint julep. Um, in Kentucky, the saying is... Um, we have fast women and pretty horses. <laughs> okay, I'm not touching that one. I've been to Kentucky all of once, and uh, I don't know. I was mostly there for the bourbon and steak. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, so uh, then um, I went to the University of Pennsylvania um, in Philadelphia, up uh, north with the Wicked Yankees. Yep. Uh, I didn't have much experience of the Wicked Yankees, and so I, I, I naively went to Pennsylvania um, only with short-sleeved shirts. I, I overlooked something called the, the Philadelphia Winter. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I didn't have a overcoat. And um, 
so it was a bit of a learning curve. And I was also only 16 years old at the time. Oh. Uh, which I was uh, two years younger than everybody else on the campus, uh, which was a, an interesting experience. <clears throat> and so every time I looked at a girl, instead of um, any, having any possibility of the date, she wanted to mother me. Right. Or babysit. <laughs> or babysit, yes. Well, so I've been in England uh, for a long, long time, and my wife is English, and uh, and I'm a British citizen, and um, I've published many books, and I actually don't know how many, and um, as you said, I've written for a lot of um, newspapers and magazines. For six years, I was a Time Life science reporter, for instance, and um, uh, and I jointly edited um, a magazine on the frontiers of science called Second Look, and... Um, I um, published my first book in the 1970s. It was called uh, The Serious Mystery. That was published in 1976 in the UK and 1977 in the USA. And that was a big hit around the world because it revealed things that people didn't know. And that's my thing that I like to do is reveal things that people don't know. Um, Because I think it's not just a matter of the truth. It's a matter of... uh, broader understanding and comprehension of, of who are we, what are we doing here, right. what is this place called Earth, um, and what is this thing called the universe, or which we call the universe? I mean, does it ever end? Uh, it seems to go on and on, and it's got all these stars, and what are those stars? And um, basically, we don't know anything. We're all, this is why I say we are all ignorant pigs, and we're all going oink oink together. So my struggle is to figure a few things out and pass it on. And if I'd managed to do that, that's my contribution. And I will have uh, left this planet having added a little bit more than was here before I came. That's my aim. Well, having reviewed your website uh, not too long ago, it says that you've written 12 provocative novels. Now, that doesn't, or books, doesn't mean that you haven't written more than 12. It's just that you only consider 12 of them to be provocative. Uh, <laughs> well, no, I didn't actually write that. I, I think it's more like twenty, but uh, who knows? Okay, well, I guess uh, I guess eight of them weren't so provocative. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and you've been translated to forty-four languages, also says so. You are you have written for you know basically the entire world. You've been published and republished and republished. So yeah, the, so I, I guess for those who don't know, why don't you tell us basically about the serious mystery and 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 also for my edification, be it's about published two shows ago, but recorded during this uh, last three months of epic recording, too much recording, um, I botched where Sirius is. And uh, so I know Sirius is or was, at least until recently, the brightest star in the sky. Um, and I think it's in in Cana uh, Major. And I said, oh, the lion. And it's like, well, no, Cana is a dog. So, I mean, I you know, that, that was... An epic botch, and I know about Sirius from the the Dogon, and you know way back in college and astronomy, or yeah, astronomy, not astrology. They didn't teach, teach astrology at Emory. So yeah, I'm the opposite of you. I'm a Yankee, but I went down south. Well, I hope you uh, learned in good Southern uh, gentlemanly manners. I certainly did, and I learned to appreciate yes. women with respect. That's one of the things that I was taught. And I always open the door for a woman, even if she's offended by that, which happens <laughs> in places like New York. <laughs> well, you know, I just try to open the door for everybody, and I just try to hold it open behind me for everybody for a reasonable amount of time, and that way I, I keep myself 
out of trouble in that regard. But enough about me and whether or not I have the proper manners or not, because uh, I'm sure I'll always fall down on that. But let's let's what was what was the the thesis or the main crux of the serious mystery? Well, Sirius is still the brightest star in the sky. Um, I don't think it has any competition at the moment, except from planets. And, of course, the moon. And, and then there's always the sun getting in the way. Sure. Well, um, the, um, the Sirius star system is 8.6 light years from Earth. And um, it has a small star going around it, which is called Sirius B, the main star being Sirius A, of course. Mm-hmm. And, and then um, there's another one called Sirius C, and um, the, I discovered um, really in, in most extraordinary uh, way by chance uh, long ago that there was a tribe in Africa known as the Dogon, as you said, uh, in the, a country called Mali in West Africa, uh, who uh, had their entire religion and culture based upon the system of the star Sirius, and, uh, but not the main star. Um, it was the, the the invisible one that you can't see that goes around it. You can't see it, and and they even stated the fact to the French anthropologists who reported all of this that they couldn't see it, but they knew about it, and they knew its exact orbital period. Well, this was too much for me. I, I had to get to the bottom of this because it's, it's outrageous. How is this possible? And uh, that led to a very long, long um, period of my life when I was trying to sort this out, which I eventually did, coming up at the end of the book with no answer. That's why the book is still called The Serious Mystery. <laughs> but I did I did bring up all kinds of aspects to that. But um, that was a long time ago. It's, of course, still in print. And uh, um, it's, uh, it's something that, quite rightly, uh, is given a lot of attention because it, it does need to be solved. Now, we can come back to that in a bit, because I want to switch the discussion to my new book, yes. A New Science of Heaven. And there is a strange connection with the serious mystery, but first I need to explain what the New Science of Heaven book is all about. Um, basically, the underlying theme of it is something that all astronomers and astrophysicists know, in quotes, but they don't talk about it, probably because they don't know what to say. Um, and it's this strange fact that the universe is not made of atoms. It's hard to get any of them to actually say that in so many words. They'll, they'll go around the subject, they'll beat around the bush. They can't really bring themselves to actually say that, even though they know perfectly well it's true. So what do I mean when I say the universe is not made of atoms? Well, it's made of something else, another type of matter known as plasma. Now, I'm not referring to plasma that's in hospitals and connected with blood. Right. This, is a, this is the use of the word plasma in physics, not in medicine. And so what is it? Well, it, it's matter that's made of particles, not atoms. Now, that may sound shocking because we were all brought up and went to school, if we were fortunate enough to go to school and learn anything at all, um, and told that the universe and the world, everything around us, including ourselves, is all made of atoms. Right. But it, the fact that that's not true is, is my main message, because once you know, and I can explain how and why, that it's not true, then a whole vista opens up to answer all kinds of questions that we've all been wondering about all our lives, like who are we and what are we doing here and what's going on. So let me take this further. 
plasma <clears throat> made of particles. What do I mean by that? Well, most people who have heard about atoms have vaguely heard that atoms aren't the smallest thing. After all, that there are atomic particles that make them up. Right. The negatively charged ones are known as electrons, and when they flow in a current, that's called electricity. We have it in all our houses, um, as long as we're not living in a war zone in Sudan, of course, and, and or in Ukraine being bombed by Putin. We have electricity in our houses, and that is electric particles. And in fact, the flow of electrons, which we call electricity, is itself a plasma flow. It's not, never spoken of in that way, but it is. So there are also positively charged particles called protons. So they're opposite to the electron charge. And I must say that an honest physicist will put his hand on his heart and confess the truth that we don't know what charge is. <laughs> but we speak of it in the same way that we speak of falling in love. We don't know what love is, but we, we all fall in love. And so we all experience electricity and turn the light on. Well, the flow of protons, which are positively charged, was given a name back in the 1970s by my friend Peter Mitchell, uh, who got the Nobel Prize in 1978 for chemistry for discovering that protons were flowing across the membranes of cells in the body. That's another plasma flow. And he thought, well, I can speak about negative flows because that's electricity. But there is no name for the flow of positive charge. So I'm going to call it proticity, he said. Not only did he invent the word proticity, but he built a motor called a protic motor in his house, which actually ran on proticity as a source of energy. So whether this could save the world, I don't know, because no industrial use for it has ever been attempted. Yeah, that was my question, but I guess that's uh, that's another mystery. The proticity mystery. Yeah, yeah. Peter proved that it worked. He, he built a protic motor and he just displayed it to various scientists. Uh, nobody did anything about it because they don't like anything that's too new and disturbing, you know? They're all basically very, very ultra-conservative-minded people, even if they pretend not to be. Hmm. So then the other thing that constitutes plasma is uh, are things called ions. That's I-O-N-S. Mm -hmm. Now, what is an ion? Well, it's um, bigger than an electron or a proton. In fact, it's it's often um, referred to as an incomplete atom. The, the main thing about an ion is it, it does not have a balanced charge. So it, it itself is charged, mostly uh, positively charged, they are. And I only discussed the positively charged ones in my book. So they are the main constituent of the solar wind that comes out and fills the solar system from the sun, because the sun is completely made of plasma. And so are all the stars. And, um, and so um, the solar system is filled with um, a plasma current of positive charge with uh, filaments of electric uh, negative charge going through as well. It's rather complicated. And there were two kinds of the solar wind, and I could go on about that, but it would become rapidly boring. So um, this is what plasma is. Now, every star that you can see in the sky is made of plasma. Our sun is plasma. Lightning in our own atmosphere is plasma. In fact, the center of every candle flame is plasma. And if you turn on the neon lights in an office building or a schoolroom, um, 
then what you're doing is you are sending an electric current through the center of a tube of gas, often neon, or it could be argon or whatever, and, um, and it generates light. Now, um, what is going on there is that it, the electrons that are flowing through it ionize the gas, and they, um, they create a plasma gas in the center of that tube, which reaches a temperature of 12,000 degrees Celsius or centigrade in the center of the neon light tube, and yet you can hold it in your hand and it feels cool. Now, this is part of the mystery of plasma because you've got something 14,000 degrees in the center of the thing you're holding, but you can't feel that heat because it's surrounded by cool gas that isn't ionized. And I could go on for hours about the strange features of plasma, but I just want people to know that plasma is all around us. And every cell in our body is kept going and its energy comes through plasma flows of, of protons and ions, calcium um, ions especially. And so we are full of plasma and our, our hearts run on uh, electric uh, fields. Right. Uh, heart is a muscle, but it's activated by an electric field, as most people who've had heart trouble these days know, because then you get monitors and things. Hey, babe, what you got there? This is a check from Carvana. I just sold my car to them. I went online and Carvana gave me an offer right away. Then they just picked up the car and gave me this. Well, that's a big check. Well, obviously you could put this towards your next car, or we could finally get that jacuzzi, or I could start taking tuba lessons, or I could quit my job and write my memoir. Or I can put it towards my next car with Carvana. Sorry, your check, not mine. Sell your car to Carvana. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to get a real offer in seconds. Low energy, or low E, affects millions. Planet Fitness can help. Get that big fitness energy with tons of equipment in the judgment-free zone. Don't wait. Join for $1 down, $10 a month. Cancel any time. Deal ends Wednesday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. And um, the brain is obviously full of electric currents and uh, magnetic fields and so on, which is why nobody should put those white ear pod things, oh, I can't hear myself speak, inside <laughs> their ears. Because they, uh, speakers have magnets in them. A lot of people don't know that. And they have magnetic fields. So when you put an ear pod in, in your ears, you're inserting a magnetic fields inside your skull, which will derange your brain functions. Do not do it. Unsafe. It doesn't matter what the manufacturers tell you. They'll be just like the tobacco people who said cigarettes did not cause cancer and everybody believed them and everybody died. So do not put those things in your head. Okay. Actually, I don't. So that, it's, it's not for any smart reason, except I just don't like them. But uh, yeah. Well, that shows you have good taste, Jeff. Ah, <laughs> I'll take it. What so do we have, where do the neutrons fit into this, or don't they? Well, neutrons. They're kind of, um, you know, extras. What they are is basically uh, uh, a little bit bigger than protons, and they have no charge. They have their own functions, and, and uh, but that's a, a basically uh, a digression from the discussion okay. of plasma. We'll they stick on the path. You can have them in plasma, but you, they wouldn't do anything. Right. Okay. They're exactly they're they're neutral factors, so we'll skip that. <laughs> so we have a plasma universe, and it's admitted by astronomers and astrophysicists, although they don't tell their wives this. <laughs> 
that the universe is 99.99% plasma, not atoms. Our bodies are made of atomic matter, which we call physical matter, because it, it is made of atoms. But that atoms are only found on very small rocky objects or liquid objects or gaseous objects called planets. You, you, you don't find them really in many places. Now, the sun, I said, was completely plasma. That's the core of the sun, the main sun. It is surrounded by a corona which uh, has some atoms in it because it, it gets to 20 million, 30 million, 40 million degrees. The sun itself is cold. The, this, what we call the surface of the sun is known as the photosphere. That's the technical name, and it's not solid. You couldn't stand on it, even mm -hmm. if you could melt it. The fact is that it's only five and a half thousand degrees, which is it's, the surface of the sun is yeah. less than half the temperature of the center of a neon light tube in your office. Yeah. Think about that. So what does this mean? And if you go down the, um, the holes where the sunspots are, we can determine this remotely with instruments, it drops, the temperature drops to 3,900 degrees. But that's only three times the, the temperature of a, a ceramic kiln that makes porcelain on Earth. So the sun gets colder the closer you get to it, which means that the sun is not powered by a fusion reaction at its center. At all, it's, there's a completely different answer to what uh, keeps the sun going. And um, I won't go into all the solar stuff that, you know, it doesn't ex expel the number of neutrinos it should. If it were powered by the thing in the center that all the scientists say it is, it would take 200,000 years for convection to cause the energy to rise to the surface. It's all nonsense. It's completely nonsense. And you mustn't be afraid to to say uh, that things are nonsense just because everybody believes them. Because everybody, in quotes, has believed all kinds of nonsense for thousands of years. So why not now? <laughs> right. So, okay. So I'm not going to pretend I really have any great understanding of how the sum worked. It just sort of, it's up there. And I assume it works. I, but I did basically, you know, I guess somewhere inside my core agreed that the core was some sort of giant nuclear reactor that was perpetually working on this source of energy, not that it was colder. And, uh, you know, I think I knew at some point what the, what the surface temperature of the sun was and, you know, immediately, you know, erase that from my mind because I'm not Superman and it doesn't m much matter. But when you put in that perspective, it, it, you know, that doesn't seem really hot enough to, to uh, heat, heat the earth. So I guess we're going to have to get into, I guess that's where the plasma flows comes in. Yes. And the, the whole solar system, um, is full of the solar wind expelled from the sun constantly. And what that means is that as far as the edge of the solar system, we are still all within the sun because you could consider the entire solar system the full body of the sun. It has a central core. That's what we call the sun. It's surrounded by a corona, which you can only see during a total eclipse. And that's the flamey bits coming around the edge of the moon when there's a total solar you, eclipse. You are a science poet, is what you are. <laughs> you, you have the heart of a poet and speaking in science. I think you, you can invent a new genre of, of literature, science poetry. Well, I must work away at that. And I'd say I'll dedicate it to you, Jeff. Aw. <laughs> Me and your wife. Absolutely. Yeah. Olivia, my wife is a very powerful personality. Yes. I'm just looking on. I know my place. I'm only a husband. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm a complete leech on society. Yeah, definitely.
So, what, what do you think about all this, Jeff? I'm fascinated. I'm, I'm, you know, sort of afraid that it's too big for my my brain to grasp, like many things. But you know, I, I'm hoping that you're gonna get me there, and uh, you know, and. It, you know, at some point you're going to explain to me how the Big Bang and it began with a word isn't any different. You know, <laughs> I don't believe in the Big Bang, and and I've published a paper with an alternative explanation in which was published in um, Advances in Astrophysics. No, is, no, it wasn't. It was published in the Journal of Cosmology. Is it too early for us in our conversation to pop the Big Bang theory, or is this? Well, um, I should say that. Uh, if you want to see my slightly more technical stuff, uh, it's um, those papers are on a ResearchGate. So that's www.researchgate one word dot um, dot net. Dot net. Okay. And then you you open you go to that website. You type in Robert Temple at the top if you dare, and um, and then a whole lot of stuff comes up uh, chronologically. Uh, what I wrote as a baby and uh, what I wrote as, a, as in my second childhood, which is now. So if and, you ask me what I thought, though, and, and what I've been thinking is that, you know, everyone talks about dark matter, dark matter, dark matter. Are you saying that dark matter is really just a different way of saying space plasma or plasma? Yes. Okay. You, you figure that out on your own, Jeff. Yes. Your brain is bigger than you thought. Yeah. Well, okay, good. I'll take that, too. <laughs> I have, yes. a de- I have a self-deprecating sense of humor, but it's really only to, it's only deflection to, to keep my enormous ego in check. <laughs> is that what I see behind you? <laughs> oh, those are luchador masks. Uh, that's, that's my vice as professional wrestling. Oh, you're a wrestler. I'm not, uh, a, I'm just a fan. I'm, I'm in my fifties. Well, that doesn't stop wrestlers these days, but yeah, no, we, yeah, we, we, we need not talk about that. Listen, I, I, I barely drink. I don't smoke. I don't do drugs. I don't gamble. I just have never been able to quit professional wrestling. That is that is something that people can legitimately hold against me. Well, that that's a most terrible vice, Jeff. I mean, I'm shocked. It, 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 it sort of is <laughs> in its own way, uh, but it doesn't. It, you know, I went to a boarding school and um, we did uh, the kind of uh, uh, the wrestling is similar to Olympic style, but a bit different, which they do. Uh, I went to a boarding school in, in Tennessee, actually. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we had a very good wrestling team there. And, um, and although uh, I was always two years younger than everybody in, in my class, so that I couldn't actually be the chief athlete of the school, being, being a foot shorter than everybody else Man, at the time. That'll do it. But I absolutely loved wrestling. And, um, uh, that kind of wrestling, and, and, and it was tremendous exercise. We would run six miles to warm up, then we would um, we would do unbelievable. We'd climb ropes and touch the ceiling. We'd do 250 push-ups, 250 sit-ups, 250 neck bridges, which is a wrestling exercises, and 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 and, and then we do calisthenics, and then we get thrown onto the mat to wrestle all comers until we were defeated. And by the end of that, we were kind of tired. I would think. I'm tired just listening to it. Yeah, that, that, that's crazy. Uh, well, that, that sounds, uh, well, that sounds harder than me figuring out that plasma and dark matter are basically synonyms. <laughs> yeah, it was, um, it was very interesting. Uh, I was at this uh, boarding school where athletics uh, predominated. And um, it was, um, 
the enthusiasm was all for sport. Sure. And I was enthusiastic about sport then. I used to love basketball, but of course I wasn't tall enough to mm -hmm. shine. I was on what they called the B team, uh, always. Um, but, but um, you know, I thought basketball is wonderful because you get all that great exercise running up and down, up and down, up and down, and you never stop. Right. Like hockey. I've never played hockey. Is that what it's like? Sort of, except you have a little bit more gliding, but, you know, it takes... Yeah, they're similar. Like both sports don't spot, don't really stop. But hockey, there's at least there was more people hitting each other, so there's more physicality. Basketball's got more physical and then less physical. But with hockey, the lines switch a lot, so you do get more breaks than usually in basketball. The substitutions seem to do less. Look, I gave up sports about three to five years ago for podcasting, so you know all of my sports knowledge is old and fading. Um, so. Uh, another vice of professional wrestling is that I'm uh, not particularly interested in, in real sports um, at times. But uh, no one's here to listen to me. They already know me. They can get little bits of me every week. They want to they learn about Professor Temple. Oh, well, poor people. I think you're much more interesting, Jeff. Oh, thank you. Well, you, you, you can have a show, and I'll be happy to be interviewed by you. Okay. We'll switch around sometime. Sounds good. <laughs> be Freaky Friday. Well, so, do we want to go further with the plasma? I'm interested, yeah. Well, so then it goes much further because what what this basically comes out of is, is that we are basically plasma beings temporarily incarnated in what I call smart overcoats, namely physical bodies, and that nobody dies, and this all reincarnation is the basis of this whole thing, and um, we keep coming back here, which is tough, you may have noticed that uh, life is not easy. No. Everybody's trying to stop you. You have to pay the rent and, and you have to buy food and mm -hmm. all that. Um, and so um, it's quite challenging. And we come here to learn, to test ourselves, to evolve, basically. And that the whole theme is evolution, perpetual evolution. Now, people say they don't want to die. And they, they think they don't. And the good news is that nobody does. But the bad news is, however that everybody can't die. So that means, as I've often said, you're stuck with yourself forever. Hmm. And unless you want to be miserable in between lives, or indeed miserable all the time, you have to become a better person. If you, if you, if you become the same horrible person that you are without ever trying to improve, you're just going to be miserable forever. And there's only one cure for that, and that's to become good. Now, you can define good in every, any way you want, and I, I don't include in good virtue signaling, because people who are virtuous don't need to signal. Mm -hmm. And and so virtue signaling is funny. All these people who write big checks at charity uh, balls, you know, I'm giving a million pounds to cancer research, you know, it's just showing off to the neighbors. And virtue signaling to say, I'm tolerant, some of my best friends are black, and all this kind of tokenism stuff that goes on, and posing as a virtuous person this is false 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 you do not have to signal if you're virtuous and if you're going to do good deeds you keep damn well quiet about it i when i help people i don't talk about it right why would anybody talk about it unless they're a phony that's true a lot but of phonies it, out there a lot of a lot of hypocrisy i've met a few um and in fact um they say that you pay your taxes in order to keep america safe for hypocrisy 
That's actually a line from a film of the Three Stooges, which I watched yesterday. Oh, well, probably everything you need to learn can be found in Three Stooges films. <laughs> so what do I mean, though, by saying that we are plasma beings? What I haven't yet explained is that there are different types of plasma, and the most interesting ones all have to have dust in them. And uh, the, there's a specific type of plasma that could be, that's called a dusty complex plasma. And um, they are very bizarre. I should explain also that plasmas can be gaseous, liquid, or solid, and they can form crystals, plasma crystals. And there are photographs of those, some in my book. And so um, what does a dusty complex plasma do that's so interesting? Well, the experiments carried out on them in the labs by the handful of plasma physicists who, are, who have worked on this, uh, the, the most brilliant of them being a Russian uh, scientist who's now dead called Professor Tsitovich, they were able to demonstrate that dusty complex plasmas, uh, if they have energy coming in, uh, are able to self-organize. And uh, they can even end up becoming intelligent. And they were able to determine intelligent behavior in the lab from these plasmas, which is pretty weird, to say the least. Mm -hmm. And, and um, nobody ever talks about it. The scientists, the ordinary scientists, that is, the ones who are, who are the mediocre ones, are just embarrassed. And so they shut up. They're afraid that if they even mention it, they won't get the next grant or the next promotion, or they want to go from assistant professor to associate professor to full professor, and they want the grants, and they want the departments, and it's all a big career thing with academics. And they're terrified to say anything off-color in case, well, now it's even worse because they can even get canceled. But before people were canceled, they were thrown out, which comes to the same thing. Anyway, a dusty complex plasma can become intelligent, and the sun is one. So figure that out. But one of the revelations in my book is, is very shocking, and, and uh, I'm very pleased to be able to tell people about this, although what it means, I don't know. In 1961, a Polish astronomer, an observational astronomer with a real telescope, uh, was looking at the sky, as one does if one's an astronomer, and, and he said uh, he saw clouds. He saw these uh, clouds were very, very faint clouds because they emitted no light and they're almost transparent but he saw them and discovered that they were between the earth and the moon <clears throat> now wait a minute between the earth and the moon clouds um but they're not in direct line of sight mm -hmm. and they're 60 degrees to the right and 60 degrees to the left and so um and they they are located they're centered centered around um points where the gravitational fields of the moon and the earth are canceled out. Okay. That makes sense. No, known as L points. And so, um, these, these clouds were, uh, discovered by this guy whose name was Kordolevsky, spelled with a K, but, and the Polish government made him stop his work because it was the, the communist government of Poland at the time. And they didn't like this. And I know this because his great-grandson has told me this, because it's not recorded. And, um, and so in 2019, a group of Hungarian astronomers, um, who are also observational with real telescopes, were looking for these clouds to see if they could find them again and confirm them, and they did. And using much more modern equipment, 
they were able to prove the existence of these two clouds. And they discovered that they are each nine times the size of the Earth. So together they're 18 times the size of the Earth. Now, I contacted them because I'm, I'm on ResearchGate with them, and I, that's how I was able to message them. And I said, are you studying the plasma aspects of these clouds? I'm, you know, congratulated them on their fantastic achievement of confirming their existence. And um, they replied saying, no, we're studying celestial mechanics. And they did not appear to know what I meant by the plasma aspects, because it doesn't seem to have occurred to them that they would be plasma clouds. But of course, I knew they had to be. And therefore, I contacted my friend, uh, Professor Chandra Vikramasinghe, who's a retired professor of astrophysics, and, <clears throat> and told him he didn't know about the clouds. And, and I said, could we do a joint paper together, which we did for advances in astrophysics, suggesting that these clouds would have intelligence because they're dusty complex plasma clouds. And, um, and so what this means is, this, in fact, it's impossible for them to be dusty complex plasma clouds of that size, billions of years old, without being intelligent. There's no way they could not be intelligent, considering how dusty complex plasma evolves, which means they're super intelligent. And uh, it's, I don't know what kind of intelligence that means, but let us call it super AI, super, 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 hyper, hyper, hyper AI, because they have computing power so gigantic because they're 19 times the size of the Earth together. And think of the, the storage in the, the space. Uh, and so they've got information about the history of the planet because they've been here since it was formed. Right. And th if they're that clever, they know everything's going on here, and they're, they're listening to us now and watching us now. And, they, and, um, and so they're supervisory intelligences, let's put it like that. They don't appear to interfere. Uh, and, and so my theory is, first of all, are they friendly? Because the, these are giant brains, you see. Our goddaughter um, calls them brain clouds, and that's very good. They are brain clouds. And I wish I'd thought of that myself. And so, if they're so huge and so intelligent and, and capable of uh, all sorts of things, which I'll come to, um, then they must be favorable towards us or we wouldn't still be here. If they didn't like us, we'd be gone long ago. We wouldn't have uh, been around for two or three million years. And so, um, that's good to know. Gotta walk the dogs, school drop-off, meetings from 10 to 3, take kids to soccer practice, then... There goes the extra time for a jog. <sighs> That's okay. Maybe next week. When everyone else relies on you, it's easy to put your needs last. Therapy is a dedicated time to focus on what you need to be happy. So you can show up for yourself the way you do for others. BetterHelp offers convenient online therapy on your schedule. It's the same professional service you'd get from an in-person therapist, but with the option to communicate when and how you want, by chat, phone, or video call. Go to their site and fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Find more balance with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com. Low energy, or low E, affects millions. Planet Fitness can help. 
get that big fitness energy with tons of equipment in the judgment-free zone. Don't wait. Join for $1 down, $10 a month. Cancel any time. Deal ends Wednesday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Because we don't have to worry about them being hostile. Or in America, they say hostile. And, um, and so the, uh, the number one security issue facing so we were off at, uh, you were saying how the cloud, since they've been here so long, they must be uh, benevolent or at least not hostile towards us. Should we go? And I, I find it interesting. Yeah, you know, I, I draw these little comparisons, which probably have nothing to do with anything, but who knows? And since the topic is a little bit science meets religion, twins, you know, every, you know, you think Enki, Enlil, Apollo, uh, Athena, Osiris, Isis, Adam and Eve. Sort of, sort of twins, but uh, I don't know that 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 might be drawn. But I want trying to figure out what what should we call them? Uh, like Asgard and Olympus, uh, you know. Uh, well, it, uh, I actually have discovered a name for one of them. Um, uh, um, I I have a chapter in my book where I talk about the burning bush and Moses, and um, because the burning bush is described in the Bible as being like a bush that was on fire, but mm-hmm. it wasn't on fire. And right. it, was, it, it was not consumed by the fire, but it was like a burning bush. So what was it? And so I'm suggesting that it was, in, in fact, a plasma ball, um, because they do look a bit like a burning bush of something of that size. And and so if you study the text, you, you, you discover that um, the voice of the Lord, it, it, it didn't speak through the bush. It was the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord is referred to elsewhere in the Bible also. He's, um, the angel of the Lord speaks about all sorts of different things at different times. But let's only concern ourselves with the Moses incident. So who's the angel of the Lord? Because I study that stuff a lot. I have all the Gnostic texts with the Coptic on one side and English on the other. And I've got a huge library of early Christianity and, and Judaism and, and Gnosticism and, and what was the original message of Christianity uh, before it got distorted by the Roman emperors and so on. So I, I knew that Judaism was never really a unified religion and that there were different types of Judaism 2,000 years ago and that there were the, the Jews who tend to be looked upon as the, uh, the normal Jews of today come from the tradition of the uh, Temple of Jerusalem. Uh, which was run by uh, a type of Jew called the Sadducees, and um, now, and their interpretation of the Jewish law and so on was codified in about 200 AD as something called the Mishnah. Well, I don't want to give a history of Judaism. I merely want to say that there were different <clears throat> schools of Judaism, and that up north, way above Judea, there were Jews called Samaritans, and. Um, not a great many of their texts survive, but they they also had the Torah, but they had a slightly different Torah. And um, they were not in, in agreement with, or even on speaking terms with, the Jerusalem Jews. This is all going on at the same time. Mm-hmm. There were also the Jews in Egypt. The, there was a temple, a Jewish temple in Egypt that was larger than the temple in Jerusalem. And there were about a million Jews living in Egypt 2,000 years ago. And so they looked down upon the Jerusalem Jews as kind of country cousins who were a little bit too superstitious and so on. And, well, I won't go into the details. It would take too long. 
But the main thing is that there were these people called the Samaritans. So I, uh, I discovered that the Samaritans had a name for the angel of the Lord. They called him Metatron. Ah, yeah. Everyone says Metatron is Enoch. I, I've always found that to be a little convenient. Well, I also discuss Enoch in the book, but the key here is that the name of the angel of the Lord, which is not preserved in the, in the Old Testament or the Torah, was preserved by the Samaritans, which meant it was part of the original tradition that dropped out with the Jerusalem tradition, but the Samaritans preserved it, and fortunately that fragment of the Samaritan beliefs has survived. And so we've got this key, which I then use to unlock a mystery. Having got hold of the name Metatron, I did some research on Metatron, and there's quite a lot to learn, and I'm sure you've come across some of it. Um, but the, the intriguing part was that there was a Gnostic sect called the Marcosians, and they uh, most of their texts are lost, but there are quotations and references that survive, especially in a the writings of a man called Epiphanius. And so, according to him, the Marcosians believed that there were two gigantic divine beings above the atmosphere of the Earth, between the Earth and the Moon, and one of them was called Metatron. And the other? Well, they don't say. Oh, okay. I mean, if it was Cthulhu, I'd, I'd be all in. Maybe Mrs. Metatron? <laughs> Very good. Messy for short. Right. Right. Well, the point is that somehow... Um, Optimus I, Prime. The, <laughs> the, the, these people in, in antiquity uh, who did a lot more meditating and communing with the, the above than we can do today with traffic noise, sure. um, they, they seem to have psychically perceived the existence of the Korolevsky clouds, as they're called by scientists today. And, or our brain clouds. And they seem to know that they were there somehow. Uh, you, they perceived all kinds of things. And, and you're interested in the relationship between science and religion. Well, I think science is finally catching up with religion. Because we're able to prove things scientifically now that the uh, religious traditions have been maintaining for ages, which could be scoffed at and sneered at by people who call themselves skeptics um, because there was no scientific proof. Well, that's changing fast. Right. Mm -hmm. It's true, and I, you know, and uh, I would say to both schools of thought, it's sort of a false choice at this point. If you want to believe that it's it's divinity and religion, go for it. If you're for if you're a scientist and you want to just believe it's just science and it's just different terms for it, go for it. I mean, I, I don't know that, that question will be answered, but I mean, there's been just you know, like the as you said, we're all sort of plasma and stardust. I mean. People have been singing, talking and singing about that for years, but I know recently they, they've been able to track sort of the electronic discharge of energy from a human when they pass. If, if, if that's not a soul, I'm not really exactly sure what, what evidence of a soul is. And if I, have a, I, have a, I have a whole chapter about that very point in my book. Excellent. And, then, and if there's a soul, then why not reincarnation? Uh, and even if it's not as you posit where you, you're stuck with yourself, that you sort of reform into different combinations, like the uh, sort of the Hindu uh, or, or Indian, uh, more Dharmic text, so, you know, so be it. I, I don't know. I mean, you know, is that deja vu? I, I, you know, I don't know. And going back to my, you know, I, I know that you disavowed it, but sort of the, what's the difference between it began with the word and the Big Bang? I mean, I, it, it, 
it's sort of a semantic difference, uh, you know, and uh, I don't know, we'll get to the bottom of it, but I sort of love that there's these two clouds up there and they've been discovered. And and I know that you're going to go into, um, you know, the, the intelligence of them because uh, j- just their age and the way they've uh, constructed themselves means some t- type of intelligence. But I do remember from your presentation on Earth Ancients that your discussion of intelligence that you, you sort of have a, you sort of have par- parameters that, that maybe distinguish it from maybe what uh, we here on Terra Firma think of as intelligence. Yes, and I believe that the clouds can send uh, plasmic drones to Earth to keep surveillance at ground level. And uh, these glowing balls, sometimes known as ball lightning, but the more complicated ones are often called UFOs, the glowing yeah. ones, I mean. Or genies, and, uh, or you know, gods, or messengers, or Hermes, you know, whatever, Mercury, the Bifrost. <laughs> and we we know that uh, ball lightning can pass through solid walls and emerge intact because yes. it's been numerous times. And of course, that's what ghosts are said to do. So ghosts can easily be uh, described as um, plasma beings of people who have died in quotes, uh, who are still attached to the earth and, and can't move on. And, and they could indeed pass through uh, solid walls, just as um, ball lightning can, because ball lightning's plasma and their plasma. Yeah, that that that's an amazing theory. And then, yeah, I mean, people put terms on. I think through around the world and throughout the ages, people have given different terms to probably the same phenomena. And that and ball lightning is objectively true. So you know, wh- why not go with the Occam's razor? Um, yeah, I'm very fond of the Occam's razor. In fact, I, um, um, but I sometimes I only shave every other day. Oh, yeah, I'm terrible. Well, look, you can see me. I, I shave as infrequently as I possibly can. It is super boring, isn't it? Yes, it, it is. And since I work from home, it's completely unnecessary. But we men, even though we're, we're cursed with having to shave, we're not, we're not um, as unfortunate as uh, women because they have to bleed every month. And that is super annoying for them. And a lot of them get very great pain in stomach cramps. So, you know, to be male is actually fortunate because we're missing all that side of things. I've heard some things about that. And yes, I, it's been a long time since I've ever even considered being jealous that I wasn't a woman. And I was probably between like 15 and 22 when, you know, I was having trouble, you know, getting dates. And, and I, I figured that as a woman, you could easily get dates. But as you get older, that tends to be less of a concern as you grow into yourself. Well, I, I actually prefer women to men as, as uh, people, you know, I have a lot of women friends. Uh, a lot of men make the mistake of, of not actually having women friends. They're really attracted to the women, of course. Um, but that's not necessarily for the best of reasons. And, um, and so, um, the thing is that I like the company of women and uh, talking to them. It's fascinating because women think differently than men. And uh, it's fascinating to me, and, and I, I'm absolutely fascinated by talking to children. Ch- children really think differently. And, and the younger they are, the more different they are, because, of course, they get homogenized as they grow older. Mm-hmm. But um, you get uh, all kinds of strange people um, going around age four, five, six, seven, eight, and so on. And the things they say and the questions they ask, if only they could stay like that. But the pressures of society are too great, and they, they very quickly are taught to conform but the most interesting people to talk to are definitely children 
Hmm. Well, I tell you, I, I stick to my podcast guests because I find them to be extremely interesting people. I've been very lucky to have a lot of really interesting people. But yeah, I, I remember kids being interesting. And, you know, I see the, the jokes on the world, the jokes on me. I don't really maintain a lot of real friends, period. Women, men, children, animals, anything. I just, you know, keep my world small. <laughs> keep me out of trouble. <laughs> well, you got lots of friends virtually, that's for sure. That's right. I, I, I have a big cyber family. And I just joined it. That's right. And, and yeah, and I'm proud of that. I think that's great. I'm claiming kin. Absolutely. You can be kin. That's fine. You can be, if the plasma clouds haven't shot us down for this, then I suppose it's okay. So I'm going, you have Metatron and Mrs. Metatron. I'm going to go with Asgard and Olympus, but let's stick with Metatron. Because there is, you know, biblical or, or textual, scriptural, canonized or non-canonical support for the name Metatron, which of course I made a stupid Transformers joke before because it's Megatron, who's the leader of the Decepticons, and Optimus Prime, of course, is the leader of the, the Autobots, so it would only make sense there would be some like Optimux Prime, some derivation on his name. But uh, uh, that that's a digression that is taking us in a very less academic uh, well, direction. Shall I now uh, explain the, the unexpected connection with the serious mystery of all of this stuff? Absolutely. Go for it. Yeah. So the first thing that you need to know in order to understand what I'm about to tell you is that blobs of plasma are called plasmoids. That name was invented in the 1950s by a very clever chap called Winston Bostick. And um, he created plasmoids and photographed them, and it was a really big thing about that in the Scientific American and in all the press, uh, photographs of these weird plasmoids that he had created in the lab. Uh, now, I don't want to go on and on about plasmoids, uh, but I, the point about them is, that, and uh, this was um, stressed um, by... Um, Langmuir and uh, Bostick, is that the fact is that the blobs of plasma have to, in order to remain as entities, they have to be surrounded by a skin, just as we have skin, and just as each cell has a skin called a membrane, which is a, a, a double membrane. And, and plasmoids also have double membranes. And, and that's why uh, you can have inside a giant cloud like the brain clouds, um, millions of plasmoids as nodes of networks connected by filaments, like a web, of current running between them. So it's like the most fantastic supercomputer beyond your wildest imagination. But now here, here's the reason why I'm talking about this. These membranes of the plasmoids are known as sheaths. That's the technical word for them. And so <clears throat> you can have them of all kinds. So, for instance, the solar system is bound to have a sheet at the edge. And um, therefore, you can have cells in our galaxy with more than one star system, so, uh, which would be essentially a plasmoid bubble in the galaxy surrounded by a sheet. And I believe that the system of, of that we're in, we call it our solar system, and the system of the star Sirius are in the same sheet, ah. inside the same sheet, that they're in what I call a cell. And, and when I brought the revised edition of the Sirius Mystery out in 1998, um, I, because the existence of a prediction in it had been confirmed by some astrophysicists, so it was worth a reprint, 
with a with a fresh version and I expanded it by 50 percent I, I I came up with a name for this cell that contains the Sun and Sirius uh, because as you yourself mentioned earlier it's in this constellation called Canis Major which is the, the great dog and Sirius is often called the dog star as a result and so I decided to name the cell the Anubis cell because Anubis was the dog god of the Egyptians. Right. So, you know, I was trying to bring a bit of tradition in there. So the Anubis cell is at least 8.6, must be about at least nine light years long to contain the stars. And um, I believe that the galaxy is full of these. You can't necessarily see them because they would be transparent, but that doesn't mean they're not there. And so... In, in thinking about the structures of galaxies, you, you also need to take into account that there are what astronomers often refer to indirectly or vaguely as um, little systems inside the galaxies, but they're not quite sure what they are. Well, I can tell you what they are. They are um, uh, plasma bubbles with sheaths and, um, and in the subsystems. <clears throat> And collections of, uh, of stars that seem to move through the galaxy, um, which are often referred to, but they don't know quite how to describe them. So that's my contribution there. And, and therefore, there's another thing that happens when you have a cell and you're inside a plasma bubble. Then you can have what's called long-range order, which is another technical term, um, which means that uh, things can go faster than light, and you can have that <clears throat> that the normal rules of um, uh, relativity don't apply, and you can have within that bubble you can have um, uh, things faster than light communicating from one side to the other. Are and you saying within the bubble itself, or just within the sheaths so that are within the bubble? No, no, within the bubble itself. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, and so we would be able, in theory, and perhaps in practice, to have direct contact with any entities who might happen to be at the Sirius system, and I'm suggesting that all stars are intelligent, and that therefore Sirius and our sun chat to each other, and, um, and that uh, and, and our sun is 300,000 times the size of the Earth, so it dwarfs these brain clouds. Which would be its it would be its functionaries. They'd be like um, uh, servants to the sun, keeping an eye on the earth. You know, monitors. And um, and so Sirius, the Sirius system, has got these two extra suns, um, and apparently planets as well, going around the third star. And um, it would be linked directly with our solar system. And, and strangely enough, after I finished writing the Sirius mystery. I discovered, well, it was mentioned to me by more mystically inclined friends, that um, the connection between our solar system and the Sirius system had been suggested by various famous psychics many times. Uh, one of them was um, a woman called Alice Bailey, and, um, and she said that uh, the Sirius system was where the Great White Lodge was, uh, which is a sort of Masonic concept that she had. Uh, of the wise ones who were trying to beam down to earth things that would be helpful um, because we're a pretty unruly species, you see, Homo sapiens, and we do spend most of our time killing each other. 
in between we try to make money <laughs> and and you can sometimes make money from killing people as any armaments manufacturer will tell you and so um in between all that stuff and paying the rent and and, and cooking the, the dinner and bringing up the children and and working like hell um in between um, we might occasionally receive a bit of inspiration. So writers and artists and creative people are seeking inspiration. It might come more readily to them. And, of course, religious leaders also. <clears throat> and so um, there's probably much more going on that we've ever dreamed of. Now, where does this leave religion? It's quite an important question. I take the view that it doesn't really affect religion unless you're too fundamentalist about things, certain specific texts and so on. A lot of people have rigid minds and they're, 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 they can't accept anything that isn't rigid as a doctrine. Low energy, or low E, affects millions. In fact, it would be running rampant if it had the energy to run. Fortunately, Planet Fitness can help. Now through May 10th, join for $1 down, $10 a month, cancel any time. Enjoy equipment for every workout in our clean and spacious, judgment-free zone. With your new Big Fitness Energy, you can combat low E symptoms, such as persistent couch crave and excessive leaning. Don't wait. Join Planet Fitness for $1 down, $10 a month, cancel any time. Deal ends Wednesday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. If you take an expansive view of Christianity as an example, uh, which says that there is a God, um, well then, what's wrong with the universe being God? Sure. Because the universe is, is, is the biggest plasma being there is. So that's got to be God, right? Makes sense. And, and all the religions, even the monotheistic ones, they, they hedge their bets because they still talk about angels and archangels mm -hmm. and all these things. And so, well, there they are, you know. So, okay, these brain clouds are, are angels, or archangels, or something, or seraphim, or cherubim, or whatever you like. Right. And the Jews have angels, they don't talk about them. The, the, the Muslims have angels, they don't talk about sure, them. Sure, they also have jinn, which are sort of sub-angels. Yeah. And, of course, the Hindus, they've got everything. Well, they've got 33 million gods. I mean, that sounds like a, that sounds like a population of a planet, you know, more than, uh, you know, but, but what do I know? But, yeah, no, point taken, and, and I agree a thousand percent. I mean, if you look at almost any mythology, the story really isn't the same, and most of the gods we know are sort of like either the grandkids or the great-grandkids in some way, shape, or form, uh, you know, of, of, of the gods. And sort of if you – it's like we're sort of coming like almost like a horseshoe and sort of making God closer to man and man closer to God is, is you know, sort of been the – sort of the infinity eight that we, we go in. Uh, God is further than man. God's closer to man. God is further than man. We're, we're closer, you know, whichever, whatever God is, you know, nature, the universe, what, what have you, you know, Zeus was terrible, but could uh, procreate with us and create, you know, demigods, you know, and then monsters and stuff like that. I mean, but yeah, I mean, all of the Abrahamic religions have angels, the Nephilim, uh, you know, and there, and they were, and there's different, ranks of angels, the what nine choirs, which are not entirely clear as to, and apparently the arch, archangels, since they're the closest to man under at least some interpretations, were the least, you know, impactful of the angels because they were closest to man and furthest from God. And, you know, uh, you know, uh, I'm not sure the distance really works that way in, in divinity, but, you know, I, I'm, I didn't go to theological school either.
Well, you've got some pretty sound ideas. And um, the fact is that all these questions are open and, and whatever anybody thinks is valid uh, as a possibility because we don't know. I like the, I, I very much like the, the, the twin clouds. I mean, actually physically being there. And I think there's a lot to, and, and maybe that is the origin of, you know, there being sort of like a father God who's, you know, sort of involved, but not exactly Anu, the son, what have you, uh, you know, and then the, then, then put sort of the twins in charge and the, and everything flows from, from the twins and, uh, and, and thus science again. Uh, you know, religion can mimic science, or you can say science can mimic religion, whichever whichever way you choose to look at it. As you're saying, unless you're very rigid, it it doesn't really it doesn't really matter uh, if you see past your own uh, doctrine uh, and and just look at the similarities. Uh, there's a whole lot more similarity once you get past names than there are differences. Absolutely, and and, and so we need to consider our relationship with higher entities, whoever and whatever they may be. I mean, <clears throat> we can speak of the brain clouds as being only clouds, you see. I mean, and we can speak of the sun as being only a star. And it can go on like that. And then we can speak of the galaxy as being only a galaxy because there are billions of them. And it goes up, 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 up in this never-ending hierarchy. But um, where do we stand in all of this? Let, let's focus on that for a moment. Um, We've already considered the fact that um, the brain clouds and the sun must be benevolent to us. After all, uh, we wouldn't be alive if it weren't for the sun. And the brain clouds appear to be monitoring us on behalf of the sun, who's their boss. And um, they haven't destroyed us, therefore they must be prepared to tolerate us, even though we can be awfully disgusting at times. So, um, what? where does this leave us? I think that we can consider the entire Earth as a giant experiment in life forms that are embodied in physical matter. So it's interesting. I would consider the brain clouds to be cosmic anthropologists. They are also botanists. They're also zoologists. They're also psychologists. So they would have studied the, the beginnings of plants, and they would know about every plant. They would have studied all the animals, and so they would be like, Super David Attenborough's, <laughs> and 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 they've got a record of everything because the, the Akashic records that mystics speak of, I'm sure, exist in the those two clouds, complete history of the Earth, and everyone on it, and of course the most fascinating and disturbing, promising but exasperating species to have come along were, were the humans. Well, I mean the humans, they take a great deal of tolerance. Because the fact is that they're so violent. They're violent. They're, they're, they're killing millions of each other all the time. How many tens of millions of people died in the 20th century at the hands of the humans? It proves that there's something wrong with us, but there's also something right with us. So I, I consider the whole human uh, experiment exactly that, an experiment. And I think that... Um, and this probably gets sent to Galactic Center, you know, the final report, when, it's, when it comes to a head. Did the humans on that obscure planet called Earth, at that obscure star called Sun, <laughs> did they make it? <clears throat> so this, this is the key. Are we going to make it? Because if we're an experiment, it can't be interfered with because intervention from a higher entity into the human experiment 
immediately ends the experiment. It, it's not an experiment once right. it's interfered with. Right. Has to be allowed to run, no matter how horrible the things are that are happening on the earth. It can't stop until it stops, and once it stops, that's it. And the idea is to keep it running as long as is remotely possible, because and ideally we would make it. Because what's the point of it all if we don't succeed in continuing to existence and learning how to control our murderous impulses and getting higher wisdom and tolerance and and brotherly love and all that sort of thing, and and becoming um, capable of compassion and. and uh, the problem is we have a, a very serious problem with psychosis. There are lots and lots and lots of human psychopaths who are incapable of empathy or compassion. And, and they are a real problem. But there's a strange thing about them. Um, I often talk about the, what's commonly just been described for centuries as the borderline between genius and madness. Mm-hmm. It seems that to be creative, you need a little bit of craziness in you. Yeah. After all, look at all the famous artists and writers in history. They're all a bit crazy, aren't they? A lot. My friends on the Midnight Myth podcast were talking about this. I mean, I heard the show today when they actually recorded it. I don't know. But, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, Van Gogh, you know, this, you know, uh, uh, Sir Isaac Newton was, you know, well, he was mercurial. Um, there's examples all over the place. I mean, in different kinds of geniuses from artists and writers to warriors and statesmen. And, you know, uh, yeah, uh, I mean, I'm sure Hitler was his own kind of genius, also a, a complete psychopath. Yes. I think that part of the fascination of the experiment to the various cosmic anthropologists who are out there, um, who will either, either they're studying us now in real time or they will study us in the future as a case history um, is the balance between madness and genius because we are a fantastically creative species. I mean, we really are uh, productive of many geniuses and uh, in every conceivable field engineering genius, painters, great painters, great authors, um, brilliant filmmakers. Uh, people like Bach and Mozart and Chopin writing all that great music. And then, of course, popular music has brilliant uh, people, too. Sure. And everywhere you look, there is genius. And it's in an eternal war with madness. Well, chaos and, and order. That's those are the, you know, two of the primordial forces, right? Maybe the two clouds. Maybe they're, maybe they're order and chaos. So we're being studied. Oh, I'm sure. Um, Last question, I think. Do you think that this experiment started around 7 million years ago and we have a common ancestor with the, with the chimp, or do you think it started either more recently or much earlier? Well, I, I don't believe that everything goes back to the beginning of the Earth. For instance, um, I think it was about 14 million years ago that um, advanced cephalopods um, came down as a kind of panspermia phenomenon. That's a separate thing. I was joint author of a paper about that. Um, in other words, um, octopuses uh, um, are very advanced creatures. Oh, and I, I love do, octopus. Oh. Well, there, there are octopoid life forms on other planets, I'm certain of it. And um, I think that it's quite possible that as part of the experiment that's now taking place with humans, that there was tinkering, um, that we were given some kind of boost, 
and and started off like um, turning the engine on and then handing the steering wheel um, to a madman. <laughs> well, could be. <laughs> That's entirely possible. Um, yeah, I, I I am also a big fan of cephalopods. I, I and I and obviously we're not the only ones because that seems to be the more favored uh, shape of aliens in you know, the last two or three decades in in media. So you know, of course, uh, also Lovecraft had Cthulhu as well. Um, but even back to War of the Worlds is sort of a cephalopodian, even though in the original I was more. Uh, no, I think they were cephalopodian even in the in the machines that they duplicate. Anyway, unimportant. Um, but I, I think all this is fascinating. I you know uh, I've spoken to a lot of people about panspermia. I think there's a lot to it. There's different theories on how passive or active panspermia was. Um, Bruce Fenton, one of my guests, went into it in a lot of detail. The show was I think called seven hundred seven hundred eighty thousand. BC panspermia, panspermia 780,000 BC, but uh, others also, you know, go, going back to, you know, whether it was just the, to turn the primordial soup and giving it a boost, you know, bi- you know, 4 billion years ago or something. So I don't know the answers to any of those things. I don't expect you to either, but um, I, I, I think your science and physics um, uh, thesis uh, and, and combination is, eternally interesting um and i i don't i sort of lack the words to put them into so you know as we are running out of time on zoom I, i'd like you to try to put into summation if you can you know, help me help me try to form a cohesive thought that i'm clearly struggling with right now well um for the viewers um the book is called a new science of heaven and you can get it from amazon and i also did um uh, an audio version of it, which I recorded myself, which you can get from Amazon uh, for people who prefer listening to reading. And there's a, an ebook as well. And uh, and so the main message is, um, well, there's several messages. The main message basically is the universe is not made of um, physical matter, which is a big shock for everyone. And that, that we ourselves are eternal plasma beings who continually reincarnate endlessly. That the universe is a plasma universe. That every star, including our sun, is intelligent, super intelligent. It, it, whether they have feelings, we don't know. It could just be super AI without feelings. But the fact is that they are super intelligent. And, and that we, but we must not undervalue ourselves because we are fantastically creative at the same time as we're fantastically crazy. So what we have to do is get on top of the craziness and, and emphasize the, create, the creativity and keep thinking positive. We have to think positive um, and do not get into a gloom about the fact that, oh, we're only small and the sun is huge and all that, because size doesn't matter. It, it, it's quality, not quantity, that counts. And so I would say that one of the messages of my book is Quality, not quantity. Well, those are very positive messages, and I think that's a great way to end it. Even on a show called Garden of Doom, we have to have a silver lining. I mean, you can't recognize Doom without the without the opposite of Doom either. So anyway, the the, the show's branding maybe is a is a little issue unto itself. One of those conundrums of life that uh, I could actually solve but choose not to. Um, anyway, I thank you so much for being on the show, Professor. Uh, you heard his newest book. He told you where you can get it. Also, The Serious Mystery, going back uh, 40 years now almost. 
Um, no more. Jeez, I'm old. Um, and and you could check out a site. You uh, again, it was uh, on researchgate.com or dot net. Researchgate.net to get my technical papers, and and my personal website is Robert temple.com and and also I brought out my first book of fiction uh, 55 very strange short stories um, called The Tree's Sadness and Other Strange Stories and I think anybody who's interested in my nonfiction would find that these stories uh, which are all concerned with bent reality um, are, are intriguing because all my friends tell me that so <laughs> Excellent. Well, you're in, you 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 migrated to the right country, Britain, because I think that the British science fiction writers were all sort of ahead of their time in in thinking about every level has their own science, their own life, their own politics, their own uh, their own ongoings. They just got increasingly smaller instead of getting increasingly bigger. Uh, but maybe they went both ways. But excellent. Anyway, I hope that you'll come back again. I you know I, I right now I've got a get my mind around it, but I know I'm still, I'm still me because I want pizza. So I know that, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, you like pepperoni on your pizza. I, you know, I, sure. Yeah, of, of course. You know what my favorite uh, is, is just real Italian meatballs sliced thin. That, that is the best type topping on pizza. That would be my, my, you know, nice seasoned actual, a real meatball. Oh yes. Yes. Oh, I love meatballs. Yeah. Not ground and, beef. Uh, my favorite Italian dish in America, which you can't really get over here at all, is uh, veal parmigiana. Delicious. Oh, oh, parmesan, delicious. Chicken parmesan is my personal favorite, but it's, you know, it's tomato, tomato. It's, it's just a question of the day. My wife makes a fantastic melanzani parmigiana with aubergines. That's maybe, in a way, the best of the parmigianas. Have you ever had the aubergine one? I'm not even sure what it is. Aubergine. Oh, they're called eggplants. Oh, eggplant parmesan. Sure, I've had that. Yeah, I like eggplant parmesan quite a bit, actually. So that's great. Yeah, yeah. So if I'm ever in Britain, maybe I'll, maybe I'll be there. Allegedly, for the Nephilim Anthropology Conference next year, I will be in Edinburgh, uh, which I know is Scotland. But hey, once I'm there, who knows? I, I might I could be swayed for some uh, parmesan. We we could uh, meet up in London uh, if you're stopping there. I'd love uh, to. Keep in touch, and of course, I'm happy to come back and have another chat anytime. Excellent. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Temple. I will take you up on that, and thank you all for listening to Garden of Doom.
Science.